Please open your Bibles to Matthew uh, 24. Again, that's Matthew chapter 24. Uh, over the past few weeks, I've been, I've been wrestling uh, quite a bit with the difference between preaching and teaching and the role these two types of messages play in the Sunday morning service. Uh, teaching, of course, refers more to the straight dissemination of information. Learn, of course, is the verb that corresponds to teach. In other words, when someone teaches, the goal is that the students would learn. The idea is that teaching generally aims for an increase in knowledge. New ideas are presented, they're explained, and if it's done right, they're comprehended. Uh, the student grows in knowledge, that's the goal of teaching. And that's a different goal from what you might find in preaching. There are a few different words that you find in the New Testament for preach. Uh, the main two are euangelizo, from which we get the word evangelize, it means to proclaim good news, and keruso, which means either to be a herald or to proclaim. The idea is that the one who preaches proclaims an authoritative message on behalf of a king or some other type of dignitary. When we're talking about the role of preaching in the church, the focus is usually on the second of these two terms, Russo, And it's pointed out that the preacher must understand that when he steps in the pulpit, that he is there to proclaim an authoritative word on behalf of the greatest and most powerful king of all, the Lord God Almighty. Not only does this mean that the preacher has no authority to change the message that he's been entrusted with, But it's also typically pointed out that he must do what he can to evoke or demand a response from his audience. He's coming as a herald of the king with a divine edict in hand. Because that message is decreed by the king himself, it simply must be obeyed. There's no room for negotiation or discussion. The responsibility of the people is to respond to that edict. It's it's just simply not questioned. Therefore, the role of a sermon is different than the role of a Sunday school lesson. Uh, The sermon is a word from God to His people, which is supposed to compel them to listen, heed, and obey. Even if that sermon is in the euangelizo sense, meaning if it's a message of good news, proclaiming divine pardon, even still there is the obligation to believe that message, receive it by faith, and rejoice over it. The point is that a sermon is to be applied. It's to be lived out. That's different from a Sunday school lesson. Now, don't get me wrong. Should the information absorbed in a Sunday school lesson be lived out? Absolutely, sure. But that's not typically the focus of teaching. Instruction is usually aimed at increasing knowledge. The sermon is aimed at increasing application. Listen, there are times when I step up here and I know that I'm not telling you anything new when I step into the pulpit, because that's not the main role of preaching necessarily. Can preaching instruct? Absolutely it can instruct. It should instruct, but mostly it's supposed to persuade and compel. Recently I was reading an author who put it this way. He says, quote, A sermon is very different from a lecture. A lecturer can speak in the third person, impart general information drawn from another time and place, and rest content that he has done an acceptable job. The calling of the preacher is very different. He must connect biblical material with the immediate life situation of the hearers. He must speak in such a way that they sense God is speaking to them directly through the Word. A sermon is much more than a collage of biblical information. A sermon is a message from God. It must be drawn from the Scriptures, but it must also be applied to life. The sermon should form a bridge from the world of the Bible to the life of the hearer. 
The author then proceeds to ask him to, to, to encourage the pastor to ask himself two questions before every message that he preaches. First, the pastor should ask himself, is it a sermon? That is to say, will this message bring the Bible into the life of my hearers and compel them to respond? And then second, is it Christian? That is to say, does this have to do with Christ and the Gospel? Am I preaching Jesus or morality? Am I preaching grace or works? The question that I had, though, as I finished that chapter was whether or not every Sunday morning message is supposed to be a sermon. In short, is it okay some weeks not to preach, but simply to teach? And I think the answer to that question is yes. Yes, it is okay sometimes simply to teach. Now, I don't know that that's typical, and I don't think it's typical because most Sundays, I would imagine you can grasp a basic sense of the passages we're dealing with simply by reading them before I explain them. The Bible isn't rocket science. It's often very simple and straightforward. When I step into the pulpit on those Sundays, I know at the beginning I'm not going to show you anything new, and so my goal is less to teach you and more to try to get you to feel the weight of the passage. But some Sundays I think the passage is saying something you may not know. On those those weeks, I'd say the objectives are to teach first, actually, And then, in the midst of that, to preach as well. So I try to explain the Scripture first, and then bring it to bear on your life second, hopefully with some measure of conviction. The problem that I've been having, as we've been moving through the Olivet Discourse, is that there's so much to explain, that it's often very hard to preach these passages. As you know by now, the central thrust of the Olivet Discourse is a field of doctrine known as eschatology. That's doctrine that has to do with the matter of end times, eschatology. Unfortunately, this is not only a very complicated subject to work with, but it's also incredibly neglected. Eschatology is generally regarded as an advanced doctrine today. I don't think that's how it was treated in the early church. It would appear, for instance, that it was actually one of the very first things that Paul taught his new converts But for whatever reason, that's how the church thinks about this subject today. Today, it's often just overlooked or flat-out ignored. And the result is that I don't think we can jump straight into these passages and begin speaking about how they come to bear on our lives. Instead, we have to spend a lot of time unraveling just what the Scripture says about the end times first. And then we can move on to explore how it affects the way we live. And that's what we're going to be doing over the next couple of weeks with today's passage. Our passage for this morning is supposed to be Matthew 24, 9-14. But as I've wrestled with how to apply this passage, I just can't seem to get past the fact that its application is going to seem incredibly confusing if you don't understand its place within the wider framework of biblical eschatology. In other words, I want to preach this today, but I think if we were to try to do that right now, with what I think this passage means, then it only served to raise more questions than answers. It wouldn't be helpful. It would be disorienting. So that being said, I want to give you a heads up. I'm, I'm, I'm going to teach today. I'm not going to preach. That's not because I don't think this passage is relevant for your life. I, I, th- I really think it is. It's very quite relevant. But I think there's a lot to explain about it first. So today I just want to teach you about this passage. Uh, next week I'll actually teach you about it as well. And then the third week we'll bring it to bear. Let's begin by reading the passage. Again, that's Matthew 24, 9-14. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time 
in this passage directly today, but I still want us to begin by reading it so we have a context for the things we are going to discuss today. And just like last week, I want to begin our reading back in verse 1. Let's see this passage in the flow of Jesus' broader answer to his disciples. Of course, Jesus has just condemned Israel's religious leaders in one final public showdown in the temple before his death. At this point, the religious leaders are going to go out and conspire against him. Again, it's just three days now before he'll be crucified and killed. Jesus is leaving the temple after this final showdown when Matthew writes these words. Matthew 24, 1-14. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, so that you are not alarmed. For this must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. In the last few verses of this passage, Jesus talks about a period of persecution. He says that there are going to be believers that are going to be delivered up during the tribulation and put to death. He even says that some people will fall away during that time. In a couple of weeks, I want to spend some time applying what he says in those verses. But what I want to do first is explain to you what this period of persecution is and why it takes place. I think if you can agree with me on what this period of persecution is, and if if you can understand why it takes place, then the proper application of this passage is going to make a lot more sense. So my goal here over the next couple of weeks is really to get you to understand this passage conceptually. I want you to see it within the broader framework of biblical eschatology. And I'm going to try to do that by looking at this passage from three different perspectives. First, we're going to start with sequence. That's all we're going to look at today, sequence. Meaning I want to begin by placing this passage within the chronological framework of the Great Tribulation. We've been slowly piecing together a picture of the end for a few weeks now. We've dealt with some of the edge pieces of the puzzle, as well as some of the really big concepts that we have to deal with. We've discussed ideas like the day of the Lord, the millennium, the eternal state. I've tried to paint a very general picture of the major events in the Great Tribulation. Now I want to start to fill in some of the details for you so you can understand where this particular piece of the puzzle belongs. The historical setting for this passage is going to inform us about what life is like broadly during the period of the tribulation. So after sequence, I then want to move on to conditions. Conditions. We'll explore this perspective on this passage next week. Under that portion of our study, we'll discuss the general circumstances of each successive stage of the tribulation, including the circumstances surrounding the events in this passage. These two ideas combined, the sequence and the conditions of the tribulation, 
will help us understand what kind of persecution is taking place in this passage. Once we have those ideas down, we can then move on to explore why this persecution is taking place. That's the third perspective of the Great Tribulation I'd like to explore, the rationale. And hopefully we'll discuss this aspect of the passage next week as well. There I'm going to try to explain the logic behind this suffering. I want to explain why this persecution exists. This is very important because I think if we can understand God's purpose for this persecution, we'll be able, we'll be able to better understand its application. So there are three parts to the introduction to this passage. Sequence, conditions, and rationale. Let's go ahead and begin with the first portion. Uh, which we're, This is the only portion we're going to cover today, this first portion. Sequence. Sequence. Where does this persecution take place in relation to the rest of the events in the Great Tribulation? I think probably the easiest place for us to begin to answer that question is a place that's been so clearly marked out for us in other portions of the Scripture, and that's the midpoint of the Tribulation. You'll recall a couple of weeks ago we talked about the midpoint of the Tribulation. There's a major event that very clearly is going to take place in the middle of the tribulation, an event that's really a defining point in the tribulation, and that's the abomination of desolation. Again, we've already talked about this, so I'm not going to go into too much detail about this now, but the Scripture says that at the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist is going to put a stop to the sacrifices taking place in the temple. So the temple's obviously been rebuilt at this point, and sacrifices are going on, halfway through Daniel's 70th week. That's halfway through the last seven-year period before the end of the world, which is the Great Tribulation. The Antichrist is going to put a stop to sacrifices, and then he's going to exalt himself as an object of worship from the temple of God. This is a significant turning point in the Great Tribulation. Up to this point, it would seem that the Antichrist has gradually been accumulating power, but at this point, that power is solidified and the whole world begins to follow after the Antichrist. The Antichrist achieves global dominion, worldwide power, and he even begins to persecute those who do not worship him. Well, there's another key event that happens at this time at the midpoint, and that's the fall of Jerusalem. The fall of Jerusalem. If you would, please keep a finger in Matthew 24, and then flip over to Luke 21. Luke chapter 21. Luke tells his version of the Olivet Discourse in Luke 21. And one of the things that's notable about his accounting of the discourse is how different it is in his description of the midpoint. If you have a finger in Matthew 24, look at what happens between verses 14 and 15. We have this period of persecution that's being described. Matthew closes out that section by saying, "...in this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations." And then the end will come. And then he says, So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, we know what he's talking about right there. He's talking about the midpoint. He's talking about the Antichrist exalting himself as an object of worship. And then Jesus says, When you see that happening, flee. Flee. Run out into the wilderness. Get out of there. And given what what happens at that point, we can understand why, right? The Antichrist is about to go on a rampage against those who will not worship him. So Jesus pleads with his listeners to run at that time. He says that they need to get out into the wilderness and escape the wrath of the Antichrist. Well, look at what Luke says in Luke 21. 
In verses 12 to 19, he describes the same period of persecution that Matthew describes in 9 to 14 of his passage. You can tell that both by the description and the context. And then look at what he says in verses 20 to 24. He says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are, in the inside, who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For those are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant, for, and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against His people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Can you see what's going on there? Luke is describing the same event. In both passages, there is this command for those in Judea to flee into the mountains. There is this same statement about how terrible it will be to be pregnant in those days because of how difficult it will be to flee under those conditions. It's the same event. But what's missing? What's not in Luke's passage? That is in Matthew's. It's the abomination of desolation. Luke doesn't talk about that. Instead, what he talks about is Jerusalem being surrounded by armies and devastated. It would appear that Jesus described both events at this point in the Olivet Discourse, but whereas Matthew chose to focus on the abomination of desolation as the midpoint, Luke chose to focus on the conquest of Jerusalem. Now, why each author chooses to focus on one event over the other, we can perhaps talk about when we get to that point in the Olivet Discourse. What I would have you note right now is just that at the midpoint of the tribulation, Luke says that Jerusalem falls. The nations surround Jerusalem and they conquer it. They conquer it. This falls in line with what is written in Zechariah 12 through 14. If you would, please go ahead and flip over there. Uh, maybe put a bookmark in Luke now or something like that if you, if, so you can compare the two here. Uh, Zechariah 12 to 14 is a section of the Scripture that clearly talks about the end. For instance, we see the mass conversion of Israel take place at the end of chapter 12 and on into chapter 13. That, we've seen, is an end times event. It's actually, to a large degree, even the purpose of the Great Tribulation, the conversion of Israel. We've talked about this in the past few weeks. In chapter 14, the Lord even descends onto the Mount of Olives to go out and fight on behalf of Israel. And the conditions that follow that victory reflect the conditions that we expect to find during the millennium. So we're talking about the end. Well, look at what happens in Zechariah 12, 2-9. God says, Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will be against, uh, also be against Judah. On that day I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, but for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, The inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of of hosts, their God. On that day I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place, in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, and the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. 
And on that day I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. So the nations surround Jerusalem, and this ends, this ends, right, in their ultimate defeat at the hands, actually, of Israel. God empowers Israel to overcome the nations. We'll come back to explore more closely what that victory looks like next week. However, what I'd have you know is that it would appear that before this final victory arrives, there is first a conquest of Israel by the nations. It's described in Zechariah 14 with language that parallels what we see in Luke 21. Zechariah 14, 1-2 says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Verse 3, the Messiah, the Messiah then comes back to wage war on Israel's captors, starting from the Mount of Olives, which, you will note, is the very mountain from which Jesus is delivering the discourse in Matthew 24. This all mirrors what Jesus says in Luke 21. Flip back over to Luke 21. Verse 20, he says that when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Verses 23 and 24, he says that there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. He says that they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, between what we see in Matthew 24 and Luke 21... The picture that's painted is that when the Antichrist enters Jerusalem to set up the abomination of desolation, he will do so by force. He will come with a large coalition of nations, and in fury he will lay waste to the city. Some of the inhabitants will be allowed to stay in the city, but a large portion will not. They will be sent out into exile. The Antichrist will then rule over Jerusalem during the second half of the tribulation until the Messiah returns to recapture the city by force at the end. The Antichrist possesses the city for three and a half years, and the abomination of desolation is set up throughout this time. That's the picture Matthew 24 and Luke 21 paint. And that picture is confirmed, by the way, in Revelation 11 and 12. The sixth trumpet announcing God's judgment is blown in Revelation 9, and the judgments associated with that judgment continues over into Revelation 11. It would appear that these trumpets happen in succession during the first half of the tribulation. So the sixth trumpet is occurring towards the end of the first half. And John says, Revelation 11, 1 to 2, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. That is, three and a half years. In Revelation 12, John then proceeds to see a vision in which a woman, who is very clearly, very clearly seems to represent Israel in some fashion, she flees out into the wilderness, where she is protected by God for 1260 days. That is to say, three and a half years. It's all just exactly as Jesus describes in the Olivet Discourse. He tells his disciples that at the midpoint of the tribulation, when they see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, when they see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, they need to flee to the countryside to escape the wrath of the Antichrist. Those believing Israelites who heed that message and do exactly that, they'll be protected by God in the wilderness. Those Israelites who do not heed that message they will be sent out into exile. 
And this leads us to the next two stages in this final sequence of events. We've already talked about the fall of Jerusalem. Now we can talk about the persecution and the conversion of Israel. So first there is the fall of Jerusalem. This is followed by a period of of persecution of Israel. And this period of persecution ultimately leads to their repentance and salvation. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. I've already established over the past few weeks that the ultimate purpose of the Great Tribulation is the repentance of Israel. Right before Jesus begins this discourse, He says that Israel will experience a period of prolonged divine discipline for their rejection of the Gospel. And He says that this period of discipline will occur until until they say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a reference to Psalm 118, when the people suddenly realize that the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It points to a future repentance of Israel. Jeremiah 30, which speaks of the coming Great Tribulation, says that it is a day of great distress for Jacob. And yet God tells Israel, but fear not. And He explains in verses 10-11, to He says, For behold, I will save you from far away, and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure." And I will by no means leave you unpunished. He also says that he will break the yoke of the, uh, off their neck and, and foreigners shall no longer make a servant of them. He even says that Israel shall serve their God and David their king, who God will raise up for them. In other words, there's a coming redemption of Israel, Jeremiah says, at which time the people will be delivered from the nations and serve the great Davidic king. But, God says, this will be preceded by a time of discipline. He will discipline the nations, he says, but he will by no means leave Israel unpunished in the process. So it is a day of great distress for Jacob, but it's a day that results in their redemption. Again, this parallels what we see in Zechariah 12 and 13. In Zechariah 12, at the same time that God says He's going to make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples and a cup of staggering, He also says that He will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace, and pleas for mercy, so that, quote, quote, this is Zechariah 12.10, quote, when they look on me, that's God speaking, He says, when they look on me, on Him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for Him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over Him as one weeps over a firstborn. There's a conversion of Israel that's going to take place at this time, and it happens with a feeling of deep, deep regret. They're mourning over the Messiah that they've rejected. And you can see why this would be when you consider the intense discipline that God says that Israel will endure during the tribulation. The nation has realized their sin by the rod of God's discipline, and they're broken by it. They're weeping tears of regret and remorse, and I think probably also gladness at the sight of God's grace and mercy. So we already know that this is a time of severe discipline and that this time will result in Israel's repentance. The question is, when will this time of discipline occur? And when will this conversion take place? Daniel 7.25 appears to give us the answer. In Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision of four beasts. The fourth beast represents the last great kingdom that will dominate the earth until the end of the time of the Gentiles. It's the kingdom of the Antichrist. And in speaking of the ruler of this kingdom, Daniel 7.25 says, 
He shall speak words against the Most High, and he shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. That's a period of three and a half years. We already know about the abomination of desolation, right? So, so we can understand how the Antichrist will speak words against the Most High, and we can also understand how he will even attempt to change the times and the law. He will put an end to the sacrifices in the temple and set himself up as an object of worship. That's what Daniel is referring to in Daniel 7.25. He's seeing a description of the abomination of desolation. The Antichrist is going to transform the proper use of the temple and attempt to use it as an instrument for idolatry. It would appear he's even going to try to get Israelites to conform with this system of worship. He'll try to change the times and the law. And Daniel says, And they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. The idea is that he's going to be given authority to persecute them for a period of three and a half years. There's your persecution of Israel. It occurs in the second half of the hands of the Antichrist. He forces them into a time of such intense suffering that by the end of it, the people will recognize their sin against God and mourn over it. So the persecution of Israel occurs in the second half of the tribulation. And the conversion likewise appears to occur in the second half after this period of persecution. Now at this point, I just want to point out, there appears to be a a, a kind of conversion that happens to Israel in the first half. If you would, flip over to Revelation 12. I know we're moving around a lot today, more than we normally do. Flip over to Revelation 12. I'm going to touch on this passage a few times before we're done. Uh, over the next couple of weeks. So I'm, I'm not going to explain the significance of everything that we find here just yet. All I want you to know at the moment is that this passage appears to describe a fairly significant conversion in Israel by the midpoint in the tribulation. Uh, we talked about this passage a couple of months ago, so hopefully you were here for that, and all I'm about to say is familiar to you, and you can kind of track with me. Um, if not, just try to hold on, I guess. Uh, Revelation 12, 1-6 appears to give a general overview of Israel's history. It talks of a woman clothed with a sun, uh, with a moon under her feet, and she's crowned with 12 stars. Uh, She gives birth to a son that's destined to rule the world. I think we know who that is. There's a dragon waiting to devour the child, but before he can do that, the child is caught up to the throne of God in heaven. Again, I think we can understand who this child is. It's Jesus. It's the Messiah. The woman then flees into the wilderness where she's protected from the dragon for 1,260 days or three and a half years. The woman appears to be the nation of Israel. The child, again, appears to be the Messiah, the dragon, Satan. The vision describes Satan's attempts to attack the kingdom of God. Again, we talked about this back at the end of Matthew 23. In the Old Testament, Israel is understood to be to be the kingdom of God on earth. The nations are pictured as being under the dominion of Satan. And so Satan uses these nations to attack and persecute the kingdom of God as represented in the people of Israel. Revelation 12, 7-12 then says this, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. 
And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. John then goes on to say that after the devil has been cast down to earth, he pursues the woman who gave birth to the child with great fury. She flees into the wilderness, and he pursues her, but she's protected there by God for a period of a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half years. Obviously, this latter part about the dragon chasing the woman has to do with the persecution that will endure in the second half of the tribulation. And the flight into the wilderness parallels the warning that Jesus gives to His disciples in the Olivet Discourse. He says, He says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, flee to the mountains. Run. Get out of there. The reason is obvious from Revelation 12. The dragon is coming down with great fury because he knows his time is short. Well, before that happens, the angel Michael casts Satan out of heaven onto the earth. Contrary to what people think, Satan does not now inhabit hell. He does not now inhabit hell. That comes later. Instead, we know from the book of Job that he is presently free to go before God and accuse God's people. That's what the name devil means. It means slanderer or accuser. The name Satan means adversary. The idea is that Satan's chief function at this time is to act as a kind of prosecuting attorney against the people of God. And here, the angel Michael casts him out of heaven. Now, the angel Michael, you will recall, is described in Daniel 10 and 12 as the angel given specific charge for the protection of Israel. He's called their prince. Here he casts Satan out of heaven. And there's this voice that cries out, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ has come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. The phrasing here is important. The voice refers to those who've overcome Satan as, quote, our brothers. Thus it was seen that the voice is that of Christians in heaven. The brothers have overcome Satan, quote, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We'll talk more about that statement next week. But the general concept is that they've overcome Satan both by their belief in Jesus and by their willingness to die for that belief. The fact that Michael is the one who evicts Satan would appear to indicate that he is acting on behalf of the people of Israel. He is interceding for the people over whom he's been named a prince. In other words, it would appear that what we're seeing here is a conversion of Israel. Again, you go back to Matthew 23. Jesus says that the judgment that will begin in 70 AD will occur until the people cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Again, it's a period of discipline. And so it will continue until the people repent of their sin. Repentance has to happen before that discipline can be lifted. It would seem that what we're seeing here in Revelation 12 is a measure, a measure of that final repentance. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't appear to be a total repentance. Again, you look at what happens in Zechariah 14, and it appears that while part, part of Israel will flee into the wilderness at the side of the Antichrist's aggression. A good portion of Israel will not. 
Either they allow him to come in and capture Jerusalem, or perhaps they even stand and fight. Either way, they don't leave when he conquers the city. Of that portion of Israel, Zechariah says, part will be allowed to stay in the city, and part will be sent out into exile. I think the only way you can reconcile that with the persecution that we just read about in Daniel 7, and with the picture that we see here of the dragon's fury against the woman, is that these Israelites still in the city, when Antichrist comes in, they're unbelieving Israelites. Likely, those who are allowed to stay in the city are Jews who are willing to capitulate and worship the image of the beast. Zechariah 13 talks of idolatry being cut off in the days of Israel's repentance, and it's an idolatry similar to the type that we saw in the worship of Baal in the Old Testament, actually. That would make sense if you're seeing many Jews actually begin to worship the Antichrist at this time. And it would make sense that he would allow them to remain in the city. However, it doesn't seem that all unbelieving Israelites fall into that camp at this time. We know from Daniel 9.27 that the Antichrist put an end to sacrifice at the midpoint at the 70th week when he establishes the abomination of desolation. So not only is there going to be a return to the Old Testament sacrificial system before the end, but there will be some who will adhere to that system all the way up to the midpoint of the tribulation. It would make sense that these are the ones who are sent off into exile. They don't worship Jesus because they're continuing to practice the Mosaic Law and they fail to heed the words of Jesus to flee. And because they don't worship Jesus, it doesn't appear that the dragon is after them in the same way that he's after those who fled into the wilderness. But they still don't worship the Antichrist either. They're committed to the Jewish law. Essentially, essentially, they're the equivalent to the Pharisees or to the Zealots of the first century. They're deeply, deeply committed Jews. On one hand, the Antichrist would not treat these as a threat, at least not immediately, because they're unbelievers. They're already under condemnation. And yet, at the same time, they refuse to cooperate with his system of worship. And so what does the Antichrist do in that scenario? He doesn't destroy them. He sends them off into exile, where they are severely oppressed for their refusal to cooperate. He tries to break their will with intense persecution. So it wouldn't appear that all of Israel believes here at the midpoint in Revelation 12. But there are enough believing Israelites, or perhaps the right word here is not enough. I think we'll see next week that the point here doesn't really seem to be quantity of belief, but quality. Point is, there is not a total belief in Israel at this point, but there is a sufficient belief in Israel for God to turn to Israel's adversary and say, enough, enough. You are not allowed to accuse them anymore. Your accusations are false. Again, we'll discuss how that works in greater detail next week. The point that I want to make right here as it regards the sequence is that while we see a partial conversion of Israel occur by the midpoint in the tribulation, it's not a total conversion. The rest of Israel will believe when under the severe persecution of the Antichrist, they realize we have sinned greatly and repent. So that's the general eschatological sequence that we see laid out for us in Scripture. And the passage that we're dealing with in Matthew 24, going back to our passage for today, the passage that we're dealing with in Matthew 24 would appear to fall into the first half. During the tribulation, but before the abomination of desolation. If you would, flip back over to Matthew. Put a finger there. Matthew 24, put a finger there, and then flip over to Luke 21. I want to compare these passages one more time. 
If we're looking at just Luke by itself, if we're just looking at Luke, then it might be reasonable to conclude that the persecution described at this stage of the Olivet Discourse precedes the Great Tribulation. In verses 10 to 11, Jesus describes the signs that are associated with the seven seals of Revelation 6 to 8. We took a look at that part of the discourse last week, and we saw how the cataclysmic events described there mirror the judgments described in the seals. Those those passages would appear to mirror one another in their descriptions. And Luke is particularly helpful in bringing us to this conclusion because in this passage, Jesus is indeed talking about, by showing us that, that Jesus is indeed talking about events in the tribulation when he describes these cataclysms. Remember, the disciples asked two questions at the beginning of the discourse. They want to know, number one, they want to know, number one, when will the tribulation begin? When will it begin? And then number two, they want to know, when will it end? They understand from what Jesus has said about the destruction of the temple that he's talking about the transition from the 69th to the 70th week described in Daniel 9. There Daniel says that at the conclusion of the 69th week, the Messiah will appear. He'll be cut off shortly after that, and then the kingdom of the Antichrist will destroy Jerusalem and raise the temple to the ground. When Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, they assume that Jesus is talking about that, the beginning of the 70th week, the final seven years of tribulation that must come before the arrival of God's kingdom. They're asking Jesus, when will that happen? How will we know when you're coming back to put it to an end? That's important. This question, this question is less about the destruction of the temple itself and more about what they think it means. It's about the great tribulation. They're concerned about the period of time precisely because of what we've seen will happen in the second half. They know that the Old Testament says that the Antichrist will wear out the saints for a time, time, and half a time. And as much as they're looking forward to the coming kingdom, they're terrified of the suffering that's going to happen before that. Well, at the beginning of the discourse, Jesus says, before the end comes, there are going to be rumors of wars and false Christs. But don't worry when you see that. Don't worry when you see that. The end hasn't come yet. In other words, we're not yet in the final sequence of events that will culminate in the destruction of the nations when you see those things. The time of Israel's suffering has not yet begun. Then Luke inserts this break in verse 10. He says, Then he said to them, That's a pause. There's a pause in the conversation that would seem to indicate a change in subject. He's talked about what conditions will be like before the tribulation. Now he's going to talk about what conditions will be like in the tribulation before the time of Israel's suffering in the second half. And that's exactly what we find. Jesus describes a period of turmoil that matches exactly what John describes in the seven seals of Revelation. So we're in the tribulation by the time we get to verse 10. But then in verse 12, as Jesus gets ready to describe the period of persecution found in today's passage, he says this, But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, and so on. That sure makes it sound like this is a period of persecution that precedes the Great Tribulation, right? Like if he's describing the seals and he says, but before all this, that sounds like it's before the Great Tribulation. After all, Jesus describes the seals that characterize the Tribulation, verses 10 to 11, and then he says they'll be persecuted before those things. It stands to reason that the persecution must occur before the start of the Great Tribulation. The problem, though, is that when you flip over to Matthew 24, Jesus says the exact opposite thing. 
Go back over to Matthew 24. There he describes the birth pains that will indicate the arrival of the day of God's wrath in verses 4 to 8. And then he starts verse 9 by saying, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, etc. The word for before in Luke 21 is the Greek preposition pro. It means simply before or in front of. The word here for then is the Greek word tote. And it means something like then or even at that time. So while Luke says that the persecution will take place before the cataclysms, Matthew says that the cataclysms will occur and then the persecution will take place, or the persecution will take place at that time. Point is, Matthew ties the two events together, perhaps even places the persecution after the cataclysm sequentially. I think the best way to harmonize these two passages is to take this word tote as meaning at that time. In other words, Matthew is just saying that the two events are associated with one another, and he's saying that without specific reference to sequence. He's not commenting on which comes first because he's viewing them as a single event. They're all tribulation events. What Luke draws out is the actual sequence of these events within the tribulation. So while Matthew records what Jesus, that Jesus said these things would occur in the tribulation, Luke points out more specifically that Jesus said the persecution would break out before the actual cataclysms of the tribulation would occur. In other words, it's not signs followed by persecution. It's persecution followed by signs. In terms of the Olivet Discord, the breakout of the persecution is the first event in the tribulation. Don't miss that. That's going to be important for our discussion moving forward, so let me repeat that. In terms of the Olivet Discourse, and know what I'm saying there, we're just talking about the Olivet Discourse here. There are other passages that give more information about the beginning of the tribulation, but just in terms of what we have here in the Olivet Discourse, the first event that we see in the tribulation is the outbreak of persecution. That's going to be important to the rationale behind this sequence which I'll discuss next week, as well as to the application of this passage, which we'll explore in two weeks. Jesus said that this period of persecution will occur during the first half of the tribulation, and then he says, verse 14, then the end will come. The gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world in this time, and then the end will come. That's where we start to get into Jesus' answer to when will these things happen. The disciples want to know when is the time of Israel's suffering going to happen. Because that's what signals the end of the time of the Gentiles in their eyes. The beginning of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, there will be false messiahs and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet. He says, for, that is because, he's explaining in verse 7. He says, the end is not yet, for, nation will rise against nation, and there will be these cataclysms, and they'll hand you over and persecute you first. All that's pointing to the signs leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem at the midpoint. They want to know when will these things be? Jesus is answering that question. He says there will be wars and cataclysms and persecution and the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and then the end will come. Then, the time of Israel's suffering, the time of Antichrist's rage against the nation, the things that you're worried about, the final act of God's discipline. Then, once all these signs have come to pass, then is when that time of intense tribulation will begin. So, he says, so, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not stand, get out. 
head for the hills. The end is at hand. Jesus will deal with the signs of his return later in the discourse. Here, though, he's answering their question, when will these things be? This will be the sign of these things. They will precede that coming end. So there's our sequence. There's our sequence. The tribulation will begin in the first half with world war and cataclysms on the earth and in the heavens. All of this, however, will be preceded by this outbreak of persecution. That's the beginning. By the midpoint, a significant number of Israelites will have come to faith. It's not all of Israel just yet, but it's sufficient to cast Satan out of heaven. He comes down to earth to rage against God's people, and he does this through the Antichrist. First thing Antichrist does is he marches on Jerusalem. Those who believe at that time will flee into the wilderness in advance, understanding the desolation that's about to take place. They will have interpreted the signs properly, and once they flee into the wilderness, they'll be protected by God from Antichrist's rage for the second half of the tribulation. The rest of Israel, however, will not. Those who worship the beast will probably be allowed to stay in Jerusalem. The rest of Israel will not. They'll be sent out into exile, where they'll continue to experience the Antichrist's wrath. Israel then suffers such intense persecution for a period of three and a half years that through this discipline, perhaps slowly, perhaps all at once, in a massive outpouring of the Spirit, at some point they come to realize, we've messed up. We know what's happening and why it's happening. And they repent of faith in Christ. They believe. Once they believe and call out to God for redemption, the Lord Jesus descends on the very same spot where He's now preaching this sermon. And He goes before Israel to recapture the capital city. That's the general sequence. Next week we'll continue our preparation for the application of this passage by looking at the conditions that this sequence describes and we'll explore the rationale behind this series of events. By the time we get through that, I think you'll be able to understand how to apply this passage much, much more easily. Let's close with prayer.